What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome back to Wellness Inc. I'm Dr. Mike Moreno, taking a deep dive into all things wellness after over 25 years of practicing medicine. I'm fascinated with anything and everything that can help you feel better, live healthier, and become the best you possible. I'll be interviewing the most cutting edge experts in the field of wellness and exploring new innovative technologies to help you live your best life. At the end of each episode, I'll give you my weekly RX, my top tips for you to use right away. Remember to subscribe for free, rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The COVID-19 lockdown has led to severe social and personal breakdowns. Parents struggle to work from home while helping their children meet academic expectations in a virtual learning environment. People dealing with illness, disease, addiction, and mental or emotional issues are further stressed. Substance abuse and alcoholism are at an all-time high. Today, I'm addressing these issues with someone who knows firsthand how to deal with them successfully. Author and speaker, Ed Cressy. This guy's story is amazing. I can't wait to get into this because I I hope people out there listen to what this guy has to say because his story, I, I feel, can change lives. And I'm really excited to have him. As a young child, Ed was bullied by other kids for his love of reading and writing. He started drinking at the age of 16 and gradually moved on to heavy drug use to escape from pain and reality, leading to an arrest by the FBI. Yes, the FBI. He struggled for years with a dissociative disorder that forced him into addiction, recovery, and a life of sobriety. Ed's story is now an inspiration for many people around the world. His work, his book, his memoir, amazing work, My Addiction and Recovery, inspires readers with an amazing story of transformation and rebuilding of one's life. A timely reminder that people can overcome addiction, mental health challenges, and criminal histories to make solid contributions to society. And that's exactly what Ed has done. Ed, welcome to Wellness Inc. Thanks, Dr. Mike. Very grateful to be here. I mean, uh, to say you were at uh, at at the bottom of, of your life or thinking at such a young age had to be kind of challenging. I, I I'm excited to get into this because, you know, I, I I've read about you. I know a lot of your history. I know your work. But when you actually get to talk to the guy, it's a whole nother level. So I really appreciate you being here. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring some value to your audience. So let me ask you this just to even go off. A little bit. Did you come from a family of alcohol or drug abuse or or anything like that in your lineage? I came from a quote unquote good family. I had a lot of opportunities in life, came from a, a relatively affluent background, grew up in the picturesque, idyllic woods of rural Massachusetts, had a college education provided for me. I worked for a firm that was named the number one best company in America to work for by Fortune magazine. They were called Genentech. They treated me very well. Dr. Mike, I could go on and on with the opportunities that that life uh, and, and society provided me. I mean, so you think when you look at your initially on paper, you're thinking this guy's this guy's just, you know, going to be a huge success. And then things 
went wrong. And we're going to talk, we're going to get into this a little bit. So you said your parents gave you the love for reading. So talk about how, you know, the glorious world of fantasy led to this insecurity and other causes of, of your addictions. Absolutely. Of all the many gifts I was given, the gift of a love of reading that my parents instilled in me is one of the chief blessings in my life. It was almost a, a cliche. I was a little kid who would go home from the library lugging stacks of books almost too high to see over. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, Essie Hinton, the Hardy Boys, Judy Bloom, uh, the Wizard of Oz. You know, I loved escape into those fantasy worlds. To me, the worlds of books, the worlds of my imagination were much more appealing to me than uh, the reality of the worlds around me. That suits a person very well when he or she is a little kid. Yet, as I grew older and got into junior high and high school, my fantasy worlds collided with what turned out to be a rather harsh reality, or at least from my perspective, a harsh reality, when I, I really couldn't fit in. I was a, an uncoordinated kid. I couldn't compete in sports or gym classes. I was very sensitive. I would cry quite easily when the teachers yelled or the bus driver pulled to the side of the road when the kids got too rowdy. Dr. Mike, where I went to high school, reading, crying, being uncoordinated, not exactly a campaign platform upon which one might run for class president. You know, I just found it very hard to fit in. I mean, you said so far you're painting this perfect picture. And, and you know, I, I say this all the time. There are people who are giving everything and I have friends who have kids and whatever. And you see this perfect environment and yet things go wrong for these individuals. When was there a point when you started messing around with alcohol and drugs? Like, how did this whole thing start? To, to me, I, I feel that if people understand one thing about alcoholism and addiction, the thing to understand is that usually or even often drugs and alcohol are not our problem. Drugs and alcohol are our attempt at solutions. So to answer your question, with the benefit of hindsight, when I was 14 years old at a wedding reception uh, after my aunt had gotten married, I was in uh, Brooklyn, New York, you know, a completely different environment than the woods of Massachusetts where I grew up. I was surrounded by loving family, yet I still felt ve very alienated, even mm -hmm. despite being surrounded by family. When I got that bottle of champagne, when I was uh, when, when my cousin and I snuck off from that wedding reception to go to his friend's apartment and watch porno movies with our purloined bottle of champagne, it wasn't so much the feeling of being intoxicated as it was that feeling of belonging. Now, all of a sudden, there's a world, there's an environment where I belong in. So what happened was I made a very strong association between feelings of intoxication and feelings of belonging. And social acceptance. You know, the jokes I made garnered laughs. People were laughing with me instead of at me. The remarks I made were of interest to people instead of fodder for others to make fun of me. These are the feelings that really associated themselves with that champagne. From that, and looking back, that's when the problem started, when I began using alcohol as a solution to my problems. All right. So now you're 14. You're with your cousin. You, you, you decide to get some champagne, start drinking. Now, at this point, you're already deep into the reading thing, right? You're into that whole reading thing and you're, you're you know, immersed in that. What did the alcohol do to that particular to that Ed Cressy? My dream 
since I was a little kid was to become an author. I remember a couple of times in English class when the teacher would call me to the front of the room to read aloud a story I had written, or the teacher would read a story or an essay, an essay I wrote to the class. These were some of the first times I felt like I belonged, like I felt I could successfully interact with my peers. I remember once the same bully who would punch me on the playground came up and clapped me on the shoulder after I'd read a story aloud to tell me he liked the story. I developed this dream of becoming an author, yet I lacked the confidence. I lacked the perseverance. I lacked the determination to pursue my dream. Instead, I found an easier, faster way to get these feelings of accomplishment. They were false feelings, now that I look back, because they were the feelings that came with intoxication. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So I want to go back. So you said that it was the alcohol, basically, it, it sort of, you, you made a statement about the how it affected your problems or how it fixed your problems. I mean, at 14, I'm thinking to myself, 14, when I was 14, I was pretty clueless. I didn't know what was going on. You know, I'm still pretty clueless sometimes. But it, do you think about, like, was it in your mind at that point that I could be going down a bad path? No, absolutely not. I never took a glass of champagne. I never started drinking vodka. I never did that first line of cocaine or smoked that joint thinking someday I'm going to wake up naked on the floor of a padded cell after the sheriff's deputies had locked me up there. But that's exactly what happened. No, I never set off thinking that the the road I was taking was going to end up where it did for me, which was nights in homeless shelters, months behind bars and, and years in dest- destitution. I had no idea when I got started. So, all right. So you, you get through high school, you get, to, you get to college, you're going to college and you're still doing all this stuff. Yeah. Okay. And you're, now a lot of people, and here's the thing. I, I think a lot of people reflect on themselves and say, hey, I'm successful. I'm, I did well in school. I'm in college. I, you know, I'm succeeding in life. So why can't I drink? Why can't I do this? Why It seems to be working for me. Did you ever have that attitude? I had that attitude of, I, of life seems to be working so I can continue on my path of drug use. Looking back, what happened with me happens to a lot of us. We undertake pathways of career, relationships, athletic endeavors, because what we're really doing is putting up a facade. Mm -hmm. We're kind of constructing a lie. And the lie is a lie that we're telling ourselves. So for me, I was working out in a kickboxing gym five or six days a week. I had a career with uh, Genentech, the firm I mentioned. They treated me very well. So what I was saying to myself was, hey, a guy who, who works out kickboxing five days a week, a guy who has a career at Genentech, that guy can't possibly be a drug addict because these are not the things an addicted person does. Now, looking back, I realized it, it was, uh, these were falsehoods I was telling myself, but I was constructing a facade. I was convincing myself I wasn't addicted to drugs. 
And along the way, I was convincing other people too. So how do you do, like, how did you do that? Like, how, do you, I mean, obviously very successful. You go to college, you're working for Genentech. How do you justify, is it every day you have a conversation with yourself at the end of the day, when you lay down in bed and you say to yourself, another successful day for Ed Cressy. So what if I'm doing Coke and meth and drugs? I mean, is that how it works? Do you justify that? I just, in some ways, yes, I justified it. I believe what I did even more so was to kind of have these milestones that were periods of binge using. So no matter how bad I felt about myself during the course of a week, because although I had these things in life, still through much of my adulthood, I was always that bullied kid who was afraid to stand up for himself. Even though I had the career and the kickboxing, I was still the person deep down inside who never pursued my dream of becoming an author. So I could bury all that. I could tamp it down knowing that when Friday night rolled around, I'd be at the, I'd start doing meth or I'd party on Coke or I'd smoke marijuana and get intoxicated. So I would more look ahead to the periods of, of tamping down the pain and use that to kind of push aside the feelings of inadequacy that were at the root of my problems with addiction. So, you know, I want to take a second here. And the reason I love your story is because, you know, when I read about you and I recognized that we were going to be able to, to interview you, I thought I read your story like two or three times. And I was like, wow, how many people are going to listen to this guy and think that's me? And, and you know, I like to think that the show, this program is meant to get people to maybe maybe to get to people in a way that they have not been able to get to themselves yet. And I think you're an inspiration and your work that you've done and your, and your book, which we're going to get to more. I, I want people listening right now. I want you to sort of go back to this point in your life that you just talked about. You're at Genentech, you're, you're making money, you're successful, you're doing kickboxing, yet you're doing all this other stuff in the background. And keep, let me tell you, keeping up that facade is a lot of work. That is so hard for people out there who are surrounded by friends or people who just think, oh, God, this guy's life is so good. It's it's a struggle. It's a pressure to keep that facade going. It is so much work to just not say, hey, I need help. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Ed. What would be at this point in your life, if there's someone listening who is living this life, what would you say to them to preemptively get to them before things got down the road? And we're going to talk about what happened to you. What would you say to them at this point? For someone who is on a path similar to mine, I would say that you're not alone. Your, your feelings are similar to feelings others have felt. I would say to consider pursuing a path of spirituality. You know, often we get to a point where uh, human power can't help us. Human power can't solve our problems. We need to turn to a spiritual path. And spirituality, it means as many different things as there are different people who are spiritual practitioners. My brand of spirituality may be completely different from yours, or there may be similarities. It's fine. The best form of spirituality is the one that makes you the best person. So, so consider adopting a spiritual path and really learn the stories of others. Even in this day and age of the pandemic, there are books 
that you can read. There are many people who have overcome devastating addictions, who have told their stories in books that you can read and you can see, hey, you know, me uh, or you, you know, you, the audience member are not so different in many ways or at core fundamental ways than people who have faced similar problems. There's a great book by uh, Jerry Stahl called Permanent Midnight. There's a book by a good friend of mine, Darren Prince, who was a celebrity uh, sports and entertainment agent, but all along was addicted to opiates. There's uh, Mary Carr wrote an amazing book, uh, Elizabeth Wurzel. There are many, many stories of people that you can read and gain inspiration from because once you realize that other people have accomplished what you want to accomplish, then you have that belief. And, you know, Dr. Mike, as, as we're aware, what the mind can conceive and what, our, what we can believe and we can go out and achieve. So first consider a path of spirituality and then learn from others who have walked similar paths. It's great. It's perfect advice. And I, and I think it's important for people to recognize that religion and spirituality are two separate things. And uh, it, it's just finding that thing, as you said, I think you put it really well, it's finding that thing that you can relate to or hear other stories or something that puts you in a good place. Now, you got into some pretty gnarly stuff. I mean, let's be honest, meth is arguably, I think, one of the dirtiest, worst drugs there is out there, you know, Coke, heroin, uh, prescription drugs, you name it. But meth is pretty hardcore. And at what point do you experiment with this and say, hey, I can still, again, accomplish and be the guy that I am, but now I'm doing meth. At what point do you kind of get into this? How old are you? First time I did meth, I, I believe I knew I was addicted the first time I had done it. I was, I think, I want to say I was 19 or so years old. I used meth and right away there was that feeling. I could just become a different person. Because I never used drugs to be a high version of myself. I never wanted to be me just feeling a little bit better. I wanted to become a whole new person. I wanted to become that author that I never had the confidence to be. I wanted to be the kid who stood up for himself on the playground like I never was. Meth was the drug that got me there fastest. Meth was the drug that took me to a place where I could feel like I was a whole different person. And eventually it really turned on me because I did, in a sense, become a whole different person. I became this victim of, I, well, ultimately I was a victim of my own poor decisions. But what that led to was a form of psychosis in which the methamphetamine had me convinced I was the target of a vast FBI conspiracy because I'd inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker. I spent years <laughs> believing, yeah, I was really into it. I mean, I, I spent years believing the FBI was following me and invisible stealth bombers and beaming the disembodied voices into my head that I heard all the time. I, I could go on and on with the beliefs I had, but they were very, very real to me. And the meth, uh, in a twisted way, the meth gave me what I wanted. It made me into a completely different person. It made me into the the epicenter, the nexus of this vast global 9-11 conspiracy that only I could unravel. And it made those fantasy worlds very real to me in, uh, in, a, in a twisted uh, twisted type of way. So you're at Genentech. And what about your personal life? Are, are, you, are you with a significant other? Are, I mean, I, I got to imagine that, you know, addiction to whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, whatever, affects a lot of personal lives. I mean, what was going on in your personal life? Had, had you been in a relationship or what, like, what was happening there? I had one long-term relationship with an amazing woman who I'm still friends with. 
she partied quite a bit too. So our relationship mostly centered around uh, mutuals, drinking and drug using. Much My other relationships were mostly of a base physical nature. Mm -hmm. uh, gr great women, amazing women, but I would never let anyone get close enough to know the real me. I, I didn't like the real me. I, I knew me. I knew that I was a lying person. I knew that I was selfish. I knew I was self-centered. My view of others was always that if you knew the real me, you wouldn't like me. Mm -hmm. And I took that a step further, believing that if you treated me poorly, that, that I, I, I held it against you if you treated me poorly. If you treated me well, I held it against you even more wow. because I knew the real me. And so I thought if you treated me well, you had to be either out to get me or, or you had to be stupid. So anyone who, who tried to get close to me, I would push away. I would create a wall of intoxicants, of, uh, of lies, of distance. Although I had some relationships with many uh, friendships and romantic relationships with remarkable people, drugs were always number one. Drugs were not the only thing in my life. There were relationships, there was career, there was fitness, there was nutrition, there was other things, but drugs were always, always, always number one. And everything else, family, my beloved dog, the home I owned, my motorcycle, all of that had some importance in my life, but it always took a distant second, third, fourth place to drug use. So when you look back, do you, were there times where you you stopped yourself and said, I got to get a hold of this? Or was it always like, you know, full steam ahead, I'm fine? I quit drugs a thousand times, maybe wow. a million. You know, I remember once at one of the depths of my cocaine addiction, right off of my living room, I had this, you know, those garbage chutes where you kind of open a little, oh, yeah. uh, like a drawer. I have one. Yeah, <laughs> I, have one okay. in my, right. I live in a high rise. So I have the, I know exactly what you're talking about. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So you open a, a little, and you put the garbage in a chute and the garbage disappears uh, right. into the basement. Every Monday morning, I would take whatever cocaine I had left over, which usually wasn't very much because I would do it all. I took my cigarettes. I took my booze. I took my whatever. And I threw it down that garbage chute thinking that's it. I'm never going to do drugs again. I'm never going to smoke again. And Dr. Mike, you know what I was doing Tuesday night, Wednesday night, cocaine, yeah. cigarettes, booze. So, you know, the problem is not quitting. The problem is staying quit. And that's a, that's a whole nother thing Now let's get to what happened to you. You, I, I know I read something. I loved the statement. It said, you're probably the only guy who was arrested by the FBI, investigated and arrested, and then given a, a, an award by the same head of the FBI down the road. So how does that whole thing? I, I, I can't imagine when you think FBI, people are like, OK, that's serious stuff. Like, what did you do? Well, first of all, I'm so grateful to the FBI and to many others in law enforcement for giving me a second chance they allow me to serve law enforcement, helping them better serve communities affected by addiction. I'm so grateful. The, uh, the reason I got involved with the FBI is I used to show up at their offices with my talk of 9-11 conspiracies and uh, the people that I thought were following me and my electronics that I thought were bugged. I remember once sitting in the lobby of the FBI office with, uh, with a guitar amplifier that I thought had uh, had a 
surveillance device in it. One time I pushed my luck too far. I showed up at the FBI offices with a warrant out for my arrest. I had failed to appear in court on a previous charge. I, as I recall, it was related to when I had broken into my relative's home to steal for drug money. And I had gotten arrested then, so there was a warrant out for my arrest. The FBI, when I, when I showed up at their offices, I, I, was, I remember I was filing a complaint against Stanford University. Because Stanford had hired me. I got sober long enough to, uh, to create a resume, and Stanford gave me a wonderful chance to work in their state-of-the-art cancer center. I went to work for Stanford. I lasted a couple months before I went back on the meth pipe. Fast forward again to that FBI office. Al although the FBI arrested me for failure to appear in court, really it represents a much greater failure on my part. I failed to use the many opportunities society provided me in service to society. Instead, I selfishly used drugs, and we, you know, we see where it got me, unfortunately. So you're at Genentech, and like, what happens with this work and these jobs? Do they finally just fire you, or how? Do, what happened there? Yeah, I, I quit. Uh, you know, maybe hours before they they fired me. They, they would have fired me. They gave me some great chances. Genentech allowed me to work with their senior management. Uh, they sent me on overseas business trips. They sent me back to school. They gave me every opportunity, and I, uh, you know, I, I made them pay for it. You know, I was a, a terrible employee. Had I reached out for help to their human resources department, they would have sent me to. I'm sure they would have sent me to treatment. They would have done right. everything they could for me, but I, uh, you know, I was too selfish, and my uh, my head was not where it needed to be, and it, it wouldn't be for many years. So you lose your job and I'm imagining you're on the streets and you're home. Like what's like, I mean, how over what span of, of time is this happening? Like how quick does someone just unravel? I guess is my question. For me, the real quick unraveling came when I switched from snorting meth to smoking it. Mm -hmm. That's when the disembodied voices started. That's when the real conspiracy belief started. When I was smoke, when I began smoking meth, I owned a home in San Francisco, that quickly went away because I would, you know, I'd smash holes in the drywall and tear the place apart looking for surveillance devices. I was nowhere near employable. Eventually, I sold the home and spent all the money on strip clubs and methamphetamine and guitars. I would smash in fits of rage. How the, old are you at this point? Uh, at, yeah, at this point, I'm probably 32, 30, 33. Oh, so you're a young guy. Like yeah. You're a young guy then. So... <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you think, yeah, first of all, yeah, smoking meth is pretty hardcore. I mean, you think about crack and you think, about, I watched something on Netflix the other day talking about, you know, crack cocaine and the evolution of it and how much more addicting it was than, than uh, you know, doing cocaine in, in the nose, like you said. But so you're you're doing all this crazy stuff and it still doesn't occur to you that you're going down this bad path. Now, you became psychotic. I think there's a lot of people that say, well, this guy, you know, this guy went a whole nother extreme. You know, he became psychotic in the FBI. I, I got this under control. You know, I just, so what? I party on the weekends and, you know, I keep my job and I'm doing a good job and my work likes me. And so I just do whatever I do on the weekends. There's clearly some sort of disconnect, some mental disconnect that happened. Where do you tie in the drugs and or the mental disconnect or both? Did one cause the other? What are your thoughts on that? 
It's hard for me to tell whether the mental health challenges were present before the alcohol and drugs because I started drinking heavily when I was 16, which is it's relatively early in life to start drinking that heavily. So it's hard for me to tell. What, what I can say is that you know, I felt all those things too. I felt I had a career. I felt I owned a home. I felt it couldn't happen to me, meaning the, the psychosis, the FBI beliefs. I, and even while those things were happening, Dr. Mike, I think it's important to remember that for those of us who struggle with psychosis, whether it's drug-induced like mine or some other form, we we believe these things. These are our reality. Right. Absolutely. I yeah. I, I didn't think I heard voices. I heard them. They they were as real to me as your voice is now. And the you know you would to touch on uh, a a great point you made earlier on the damage that meth does. You know, to this day, even twelve almost thirteen years after my last hit of meth, I still experience these disembodied voices from time to time. And I still entertain beliefs of some government interest in my life. Now, I'm fortunate, thanks to God and thanks to amazing people in my life, I'm able to use these to my advantage. I'm right. able to, to, to believe, uh, you know, I'm able to, as you so kindly said earlier, to use what others have given me as a way of inspiring people who are looking to transform their own lives. Uh, the point is, you know, if you're questioning whether your drug use is a, if you're questioning whether you might have a problem around drugs, the very fact that you're asking that question might want to cause you to start investigating this a little bit deeper. Read, like we were saying earlier, read other people's stories, connect with other people and see hey, what similarities are there between you, the audience member, and someone who has experienced problems like I have and ultimately, fortunately, overcame them. So you've been in jail. I was in jail for, uh, I think I did a total of 60, 60 days, two and a half months. And to be honest, the, the reason I didn't serve much more time was because society gave me unfair advantages due to my birth circumstances. You know, let, let's face it, I, I had a lot of privileges that many people don't get. And it's, it's, I used to think that I was never a violent criminal because I made better decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I never was a violent criminal. I used to think the reason was, hey, yeah, I just I just decide better. I, that, that has nothing to do with it. The reason I was never a violent criminal is because when I was selling cocaine, for example, I was selling coke out of a paid for apartment while I was going to college, which was also paid for. Had those things not been true and, and my apartment and college not been true, I would have been selling probably crack cocaine out on the street. And I would have engaged in violent crime, almost certainly. I would have hurt myself. I, I would have hurt someone else. These things might sound obvious to say, but it's a little bit different when you live them. And uh, right. you know, yes, and, and fortunately, you know, one of the many blessings of my sobriety is that I've been allowed to do a lot of work inside prisons and jails. So our sisters and brothers who are incarcerated and who are turning their lives around, they really right. gave me a wonderful education on the fact that the difference between me and someone who's serving a long sentence in prison is not so much a difference in kind, it's just a difference in degree. And it's because of my birth circumstances and the unfair advantages society bestowed upon me. I mean, you know, for a guy that's gone through all this and you're, I, you know, I got to tell you, you're, you're very humble, you're very straightforward, you're, you're very, uh, you know, you've been through a lot of hell. And I think when we, we, 
we take someone like this and then we put them in a pandemic, man, now you're really challenging people. And, you know, what this pandemic has done, we can go on and on and on about it. But think about these people who have mental illness, who have addiction issues, who have these problems. And now you throw a pandemic into the whole thing. I mean, how do these people keep going? What do you think about this pandemic with all, you know, how the impact it's had on mental illness and all of that stuff? I think the pandemic is a wonderful opportunity. I think first, let's say if I could snap my fingers and make the pandemic go away, I would. However, you know, we can't often change our circumstances. Right. Yet circumstances don't matter nearly as much as the view we choose to take of our circumstances. And there is no better time that to shape our own character than during times of adversity. I think uh, Martin Luther King said it best that. You know, people are not formed in periods of comfort. People's characters are formed in periods of calamity. Uh, Dr. King says it much better better than I. But, you know, it's um, it, it's our, you know, we can choose to look at the pandemic as a, and the isolation that results as a terrible affliction, or we can choose to look at the pandemic as an opportunity to explore other means of healing, other means of transformation. The pandemic's not gonna change either right. way. And we right. don't have control over the pandemic. So what we gotta do is take charge of what we can control, which is our viewpoint, our mindset, and our attitude. It's not easy, you know, trying to change our mind is like trying to change the wind sometimes. It right. really feels that way. But you know, the uh, the harder we apply ourselves through Practices, at least for me, the practices that work best are meditation, spirituality, mm -hmm. nutrition, fitness, daily practices. You know, we can form our minds to take on that adversity and we can find opportunities, even in these very challenging circumstances that the pandemic presents. You know, I think a lot you hear people talking about silver linings of any bad situation. Right. And, you know, there are silver linings of of bad situations. And when you talk about the pandemic in particular, what we're talking about, I think that this pandemic has almost allowed things to surface that would otherwise not have surfaced. In other words, something of this magnitude has led people, you know, to maybe take a look at themselves. Maybe it's challenged them in such a way to where they're just going along much like you were and things are going okay. And they're still you know, stuck in this, this problem, their world. But I think the pandemic has kind of almost slowed things down in a sense to allow people to say, God, this is a problem and I need help. Which takes me to my next question. What do you do or what can you say to these people to say, Hey, it's okay what you're going through. And there are ways to get help. And it's not kind of like, look at me, I did it sort of thing. It's, it's, it's really, it shows your heart and your passion for humanity. Where do they start? I'm this guy listening. I got these problems. I have all this stuff going on. You know, I don't have the, the, as you put it, the good hand that was dealt to you. How do we get these people to say, Hey, it's okay. And there are people out there to help you. Uh, absolutely. There are many, many people have faced challenges far more daunting than mine. And there may very well be people listening right now whose challenges far exceed anything I've overcome. Your suggestion is to look to people like Anne Frank 
or the Dalai Lama, who was exiled from Tibet when, when he was a little child and became a spiritual leader of a nation, and in fact, the world. Look to stories of people who have overcome challenges similar to yours, or, uh, or people who have done things that you're trying to do, which is, which is get past barriers, which is to transform right. your life. See what they have done Understand that it can be done, that these are, quote unquote, normal people in many respects who are put into extraordinary circumstances, yet through their spirits, through the grace of God, through whatever means they took, have triumphed. They can triumph. You can triumph, too. You know, remember, when it comes to drug addiction, the, the goal is not to get sober. The goal is not to quit doing drugs or to quit drinking. These are necessary steps along the path, but the goal is to lead a meaningful life. Right. The goal is to be of service to a form of God you may choose to believe, or the goal is to be of service to your fellow human beings, or the goal may be to improve yourself in some meaningful way. Whatever the goal is for you, that's what to keep in mind. We don't wanna quit drugs and just go back to leading our normal life. I mean, may, maybe some of us do, and if that's what you wanna do, that's fine. But for most of us, the goal is really to lead that meaningful life of service, of spirituality, of self-improvement. So whatever challenges you face, remember, adversity can often be our ally. We can shape ourselves in times of adversity like we cannot in any other times. Adversity is a fantastic opportunity to really develop our character, to really strengthen ourselves. And if I could tell one quick story it's Please. A story, yeah, it's a story about uh, a hiker going through the woods who happens upon a butterfly. The butterfly is emerging from its cocoon, right? Now, the hiker and the butterfly is struggling. The butterfly is struggling mightily. It's fighting. It's fighting. It's trying to free itself from the cocoon. So the hiker takes out his knife and starts to cut the cocoon, thinking that he's going to help the butterfly by setting it free. Now, the hiker has all the best intentions. But really what he's doing is harming that butterfly because it's mm -hmm. the struggle to free itself from the cocoon that gives the butterfly's beautiful wings their strength. Human beings are very much like that butterfly. We, we find ourselves in times of intense struggle, like many of us are, are finding ourselves now during this challenging pandemic. Yet it's that struggle oftentimes that allows us to develop those wings which give us a chance to fly. To fly means to achieve our dreams, to reach our highest aspirations, to be in service to a higher power and or to our fellow human beings, to really transform into our best selves. So, I, I, I mean, it's a great analogy and, and I totally, I get that and I see that. Do you ever think about, and unfortunately for some people, these diseases, these addictions, these things we're talking about, people don't live to tell their story like you did, Ed. People don't get there. And you see it every day. You watch the news. You hear these stories. Unfortunately, some of us, they're personal things. You know about people. You hear about people. But, you know, to use your analogy, uh, that that butterfly never gets to fly. And, and bad stuff happens. When you look back and you think about that, would you say that you were able to fly, thankfully, for a lot of people because you're doing a lot of good, good and I, I want to talk about my addiction and, and recovery a little bit in a sec. But you had to go through a lot of stuff. And is there a point where you think, you know, 
I needed to go through those things to be able to do what I'm doing now. Or I could have kind of only gone through half of those things and I still would be where, you know what I'm saying? Like, did I need to go through all of that in order to be where I am now and spreading the word and doing what I'm doing? Or could I have gone through just 10% of that and I would have still been able to be who I am now? Absolutely. I question the universe every day. Not a morning goes by when I don't wake up and think, you know, why why can't uh, my depression go away? Or why can't I be rid of this anxiety? I could be of so much greater service. I, I don't know. You know, I have to be dealt the, I have to, to play the hand that was dealt to me. You, you look at me and you see a bit, you know, basically a privileged white male who was given a lot of things in life, yet selfishly threw them all away in, in favor of, of doing drugs and going to strip clubs and uh, buying motorcycles and things like that. Yet at the same time, those things that society gave me, the things of a material nature, were like a weight, like were like a, a an anchor or tied tied around my leg that, that dragged me to the bottom of a, a sea of misery and desperation. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I think we each there's a, a concept in in Buddhism of uh, of dukkha, right? The the concept of dukkha means we we all suffer. And although we suffer in different ways and various afflictions are visited upon us, depending upon our birth circumstances, the, the nature of our suffering is, is very similar. So we're, we're all connected that way. Um, yeah, many of us don't make it out of addiction. Many of us don't make it through our challenges. Those of us who do, hopefully we can live in service to the memories of those who came before us. Hopefully we can, we can um, keep their legacies alive. Hopefully we can do better for ourselves and the world around us in memory of people who are no longer with us. Right. And let's face it, you know, this, our time for all of us, our time upon this earth is finite. You know, we're, we're all here for a relatively short amount of time for, for many of us, it's going to be years and years and decades and decades, but our time on this earth will end someday. Right. And uh, as my, one of my closest friends and mentors likes to say, you never see a U-Haul following a hearse, right? right? You never see a U-Haul following a hearse. With nothing of a material nature can we take with us on the next stage of the journey, should we choose to believe there is a next stage. So what we can do is focus on when our time comes to leave this earth, what do we want to look back upon? And do you think this is the foundation for my addiction and recovery? Which, by the way, is just... Man, this is something you guys have to read. Um, and I and I think I know you do some great stuff with is it Defy Ventures as well, right? Um, it's a charity that you that you work with. But you know, when you look at this work that was the product of quite honestly a pretty bumpy road. Um, drugs, alcohol, FBI arrest, jail. I mean, it wasn't pretty. Uh, and even though you sat at that poker table of life and were dealt a pretty good hand, you almost lost the pot in a sense. And I tell patients that all the time. Listen, you sit down, life should be like sitting down at a poker table, right? It shouldn't be boring. It should be fun. You're going to make friends. You're going to make enemies and you're going to get a hand dealt to you. How you play that hand is what leads to your success or not. And I think you can't just keep turning the cards back to the dealer and say, give me another hand. You take that hand, you play it the best you can. You sit on that table of poker for as long as you can and you, you make the best of it. And I think that that's what you've done is at the end of that night, 
you've you were able to come up with my addiction and recovery and you're able to share this with people and i think it's remarkable you know what's the one thing you would say that is you're most proud of from this work what i'm most proud of from having written my book was to put my faith in a form of god that i believe exists which allowed me to face my fears you know there's a quote by joseph campbell the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek right the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek and i remember getting up before dawn every day for a, a year, a couple of years, however long it took to write my book, I would have my uh, French press coffee by my side. <laughs> I would sit at my laptop and I would go to war with my demons. I would go to war with my fear. And I believed the uh, FBI was spying on me at times. I believed that if I told the story of the 9-11 hijacker, I believed I'd be friended, that the government might assassinate me. I believed that people would hate me. I believe that Muslims would hate me because uh, I would come across as being disrespectful to uh, to religious or, or faith-based uh, practices. I believe all, all these terrors, all these demons set upon me as I was writing my book. Yet, thanks to a belief in a spiritual force, I faced my fear, was able to write a book which hopefully brings some value to others Hopefully, some people will read my book and believe that transformation is possible in their lives and the lives of people they love. Yeah, I think um, when you you do a work like that, it's a it's a very vulnerable thing to do. And uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine the emotions that went through your mind when you're, you know, pounding this thing out on a computer or, or typewriter or whatever it was. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there were tears. And there were times where you're like. Yeah, this may be too much for me to do, but you you forged ahead, you pushed through it. And now you share this work with a lot of people. And I think, uh, listen, we all have our story. And one of the things I like to do with with the show is perhaps get people to think about their story. And uh, we're fortunate enough to bring some amazing people on here to share their story. And, and you know, people get through it and people get to where they are like you and they they appreciate it. And then they go out and they share this with other people. And that's a beautiful thing. And I know uh, you do some work with Defy Ventures. Tell me a, a little bit about Defy Ventures. Yeah, thank you. Defy Ventures is an amazing organization. They're a nonprofit that delivers entrepreneur and employment training to currently and formerly incarcerated persons. Thanks to uh, Defy Ventures and some other organizations, I've had the opportunity to work in some of California's most notorious maximum security prisons. I've had the opportunity to work inside of jails. I've learned that the people I've worked with, whom society often labels as being among the very worst of the very worst, these are actually some of the most beautiful human beings we have in our society. Now, they've done some uh, terrible things. By no means do, do we condone actions taken by people like me who hurt others through our poor choices. The point is that our sisters and brothers who are incarcerated or who were incarcerated, many of them really are transforming their lives. Many of them have beautiful things to offer to society and are bringing those things to society. You know, um, I think people who have served time are one of the most 
underutilized resources our society has. You know, when we give people a chance to uh, learn from their mistakes and to share what they've learned with others. Yeah. When we give people second chances, you know, the thing about second chances is that second chances benefit the giver as much as the receiver, sometimes even more so. That's what I found in my life. The second chances I was given by the FBI, by the police department, by uh, the American Red Cross, by my communities, by my wonderful family, all the incredible organizations and people who gave me second chances, who allowed me to contribute, they've received something back from me. And, and hopefully what they received back from me is as good as what they gave me, which it's, it's hard to believe from my perspective because it was so good and so wonderful what they right. gave me. But I'm giving back, and I'm just one example. There are many, many women and men who are or were incarcerated who are giving to society just as much as me, if not far more so. And uh, I think this is a wonderful opportunity that the Five Ventures is providing to society. Let me ask one final question before we wrap up. Um, I'm somebody listening to this program right now, this podcast, listening to this conversation that you and I are having. And I'm saying to myself, I'm this guy. Maybe I'm this guy when he was 30 or 40 or whatever. No matter where you are in your life, me, even if you're sitting pretty um, and life seems great. If we got to you and you're thinking about this discussion that Ed and I have had, and I'm this guy listening, Ed, what do you tell that person to make them, to help them, to make them head in the right direction? What's a short nugget you can tell them? The short nugget I can tell them is what I like to call the three S's, spirituality, service to others, and self-improvement. If whatever we're doing hits one or more of those three S's, usually, eventually, that will put us on the path to where we want to get. You know, I got to say, we were fortunate enough for you to get through some difficult times because it led to your your work in, in my addiction and recovery. It led to the work you do with the five ventures. Um, and it led to you continuing to help people. Thankfully for us, you made it through this this. Um, quite a challenging life. And I know there are others out there that can do the same thing by by looking into your work. And, and as you said, just looking into the work of others and, and, and seeing the struggles that people have been through. So um, thank you for sharing your experience and thank you for your continued work that you do. And I, I'm sure people may want to reach out to you and where can, where can people find you online or, or find your book, My Addiction and Recovery? Oh, thank you. You can go to my website, www.authoredcressy. Author like author of the book, Ed Cressy, E-D-K-R-E-S-S-Y.com. Or you can just search by my name, Ed Cressy. It's a fairly unique name. Beautiful. So people can reach out to you. People can reach out and say, hey. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for mentioning. If you or someone you love is struggling, if I can help in any way, don't hesitate to reach out. Ed, thank you so much for everything. We appreciate it. A lot of people do. Thank you, Dr. Mike. I mean, amazing stuff. And God, you know, I say this all the time and we have such amazing guests on here. I'm hoping that if it helps one person, if there's one person that can lead down a pathway of success like like Ed's, uh, then we've done our job. And, And 
I don't, I guess I shouldn't call it a job. It's, it's our service to, to the community to we, that we live in, to our families, to our friends, our loved ones, and maybe to our perfect strangers. But uh, let's get now to uh, today's weekly Rx. Rx. You know, the first thing I got to say is um, there is not enough attention given to addiction and mental illness. I think people need help. And I think I understand there are resources and a lot of things that that are barriers to helping these people, but we have to continue to work at getting these people help, and and we have to continue to recognize that that uh, people need our services and we need to devote time and efforts and and uh, finances to these people, and I and I hope this continues to head in that direction and and more of that is done. And lastly, I just want to say if. There are people out there struggling and we were able to listen to Ed's journey. And fortunately for us and for all of us, he was able to come out on the other side. But for people out there who are listening to this and listened to this and said, you know, God, that sounds a lot like me. Now is the day to take that step and reach out for help and uh, talk to somebody, um, talk to anybody, but let people know that you're having a tough time. That's it for today. Don't forget to subscribe for free download and listen to wellness inc with me dr mike moreno on apple podcasts or wherever you listen follow me on social media at the 17 day diet take care the wellness inc with dr mike moreno podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional medical financial legal or other advice diagnosis or treatment This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional. Thank you.